am not even worthy to reach up and untie Jesus' shoe. He saw how great Christ was and how, how far below the glory of God he was. And so he understood humility, that it's all about exalting God and not myself. Then we went to the next, to Christ's message, actually, as he taught his disciples how to pray, he concluded that prayer with one of the most beautiful conclusions. He concluded the prayer with, everything is about God. Thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, thine is the glory, and all that's forever. And that's the prayer of the humble, that God would empty us daily so because when we're emptied of ourself, God fills us. When we're full of ourself, we can't be full of God. And that's, that's the paradox, and that's why the discipline of humility is so important. Then we saw through Luke, profiling those nameless shepherds, what humility looks like in a normal person's life. They're not even concerned about their name. They're only concerned about hearing what God says and responding to what God says and when they do encounter the glory of God, it's transformational. And they just can't stop talking about it because they don't talk about themselves. It's kind of like the last verse of, of Acts chapter 14, the first missionary report. As Paul came back from his first missionary journey, reporting to his home church in Antioch, he reported all that God had done through him. God uses people. But notice the emphasis, all that God had done. And he used us. And that concept is what humility looks like in normal people. Now tonight in 1 Peter 5, we're looking at Peter's message of humility being a choice. And we're going to see that when we get to uh, especially the key verses, uh, chapter 5, 5 through 7. Uh, humility is a choice. And what Peter emphasizes, now remember the book of 1 Peter is the preeminent epistle in the New Testament treating suffering. The word suffering and the concept and, and all the uh, attending descriptions of suffering are most repeated in the book of 1 Peter. And, and the reason for that is uh, life was very tough for these people. I mean, most people don't like history. Uh, it's boring to them. And a lot of people don't like geography. You know, most of us Americans, we could not win the geography B because we're so myopic. You know, we just are provincial. We just are very connected to what we're doing. But if you know a little history and geography, the, the idea of suffering and First Peter, it's staggering to think. Now, I'll give you a quick one. Turkey, you hear about Turkey all the time. The country of Turkey today is the Roman Empire province of Asia Minor. It was called the Roman province of Asia or Asia Minor. Turkey, in the ancient world, in the time of the Bible... Turkey has more Roman ruins than you can find in Italy. There are more Greek temples in Turkey than you can find in Greece. And there are more biblical sites in Turkey than there are in the Holy Land. Turkey was the epicenter of the Roman Empire. Rome was the capital. Turkey was the epicenter. The second city of the empire, Ephesus, was in Turkey. And so was the most expression of Rome in its greatness in Turkey. Now if you look, I mean look at chapter 1 of, of 1 Peter. It's one of those things, I remember when I first started out in ministry, I used to have people read in Bible studies the Bible out loud. 
I found very quickly, people don't read the Bible out loud very often, and when they do, they don't even know how to pronounce half of it because the public reading of Scripture has kind of fallen on hard times. And I remember uh, having a Bible study and said, let's study 1 Peter, let's go all the way around, we're going to cover the first, you know, eight verses and then we'll discuss it. And, and someone said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion scattered through hard word, hard word, hard word, Asia, hard word. And they actually said that. They didn't even try and read it. They went hard word, hard word, hard word. Do you notice what it says in verse 1? Through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. If you take the time to go to the back of your Bible where those maps are, you know, a lot of Bibles have maps, you find out that, that if, you had a, a, if this was Turkey, it's covering the sectors, the, it, primarily the top half of Turkey or Asia province, uh, the Roman province of Asia. This letter was written to the people that were in the most cosmopolitan, the most Roman, the most civilized, the most advanced, the most cultured part of Rome. Other than actually living around the Forum area in Imperial Rome, Turkey today, Roman province of Asia then, was the most Roman. Therefore, it was the most persecuted part of Rome. It was in that area of Roman province of Asia that emperor worship first was launched. And that's where, if you go, I mean, I, uh, it's hard for me not to talk about the, the touring over there because it's just so unbelievable when you see it. Uh, Bonnie and I have had the privilege of taking 2,500 people to the Holy Land and bringing 2,499 of them back. One lady that was 90 hiked Masada and tripped and broke something, and we couldn't bring her home for a couple weeks. But other than that, we've had total success in getting them over and back. But one of the stops on touring is often when you go to Roman province of Asia, modern-day Turkey, you go to Sardis. That's one of the churches of the seven churches of Revelation. Sardis is where it began. I mean, sorry, not Sardis, Smyrna. Smyrna is where it began. And when you go to Smyrna, you can still see in the, the center of the modern city uh, uh, it's, is the ancient city of Smyrna, and it's still excavated in there. And you can go into the forum and see the archway through which every inhabitant of the city had to line up at a little table, and legionnaires were there, and the city clerk was there, a little bowl of incense was there, and a fire was there. And you had to one at a time, walk through, take a pinch of the incense, sprinkle it on the fire, and as you walked by doing that, the clerk handed you a little piece of paper. It was called a libelli, which means your certificate of freedom, that you are a loyal citizen for another year because you burnt incense, which signified Caesar was Lord. Well, there was a group of people in that city, that we know because Christ was writing to them, who could not confess that the emperor was Lord. And so they would come and they would put their hand out. They'd withdraw their hand. They'd look at the legionnaire and they'd say, I can't. And they would be taken. And the pastor of the church, you all heard of him, his name was Polycarp. What, they were imprisoned and the pastor was burned alive. It isn't just ISIS that does that. The Romans did that. He was burned alive at 86 years old in that square because he would not go through the, the token appearance of throwing a little pinch of incense on a fire. 
to say Caesar was Lord. That's what they were facing. This letter that we're reading in 1 Peter was written to the people who would go through those fiery trials. That's the New Testament world of Peter. Peter is a book set against the backdrop of impending persecution. Paul is back in prison awaiting execution. Peter is on the run, soon to be executed. So God directs Peter to write a book about hope and peace facing inevitable suffering. Now, we don't even hardly think about suffering in America because one of the biggest sufferings we have is when the air conditioning doesn't work or when, you know, uh, you know something like that or, or the internet is down or it's slow. You know what I mean? It's just not normal American life homes. And we don't have anybody with a soldier going to burn us at the stake. I mean, we can watch ISIS do it, but we're a comfortable thousands of miles away from most persecution other than minimal scoffing, possibly, at our Christianity. These people were facing imminent persecution. We know that Peter chose one of the most difficult places to minister. In 1 Peter, this address that he served of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia constitute the northern two-thirds of the most Roman part, the center of everything that was Rome. And Peter, just like him, went to the hardest spot and cultivated what he had struggled with. What did Peter struggle with? Denying Christ. So he went to the people most prone to be tempted to deny Christ and says, it's possible to be bold, to be fearless, to have hope and peace through the greatest suffering. See, that's what 1 Peter's all about. And Peter said suffering's coming. He says it no less than 15 times. Peter uses eight different Greek words for suffering. In other words, he exhausts the vocabulary of the Greek language to say it's coming like a wave, a tsunami. It's coming, it's, it's inexorably upon you. And you can have hope and peace. Now, you would think that, that that's all he would talk about. But he weaves through this suffering epistle the themes that surround humility because another fact is humble people are bold. Humble people, not people who think little of themselves, people that are supernaturally, by God's grace, choosing to be humble, with that grace comes a boldness because it's a conviction that he must increase. And it doesn't matter how far I decrease, even if I get tied to the stake like Polycarp did and burned. Polycarp made a testimony. In fact, he's the one that began testifying from the flames so that they began taking the tongues out of the people that they burned at the stake, lest they follow the example of preaching until they died. It was quite a crowd stopper that people being executed that way would speak of the love of Christ and the joy and peace as they gruesomely suffered. So they began detonguing them as they executed them. First century believers faced horrible tortures. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. This is just one of the 15 examples, and this is what he says in 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the, look at this, fiery, fiery trial that is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. The phrase in verse 12 could be read, the painful 
trial that burns among you if you, if you read it in the order of the Greek words. The original readers would hear this as martyrdom by being burned at the stake. Because that's what Nero had done already. As Peter was writing this, Nero was starting the fires in Rome. Now, now everybody, when you think of Rome, what's the big round building that's starting to fall apart that everyone equates with Rome? You know, you think of uh, Eiffel Tower in Paris, and what do you think of in Rome? The Colosseum. The Colosseum is what we think about. The Colosseum wasn't there in the early church time. It wasn't there till the end of the first century. Uh, Domitian and that crowd from the late 80s and the 90s is the one that built that. What was there in the 60s when martyrdom started in the church and Peter and Paul were martyred? The Colosseum is built over Nero's palace because even the Romans were disgusted at Nero, at his cruelty. And so Nero, under the Colosseum, if you took it away, that's where the great pool that was the courtyard of the golden palace of Nero is surrounded a lagoon that was filled in by Domitian and or the Flavian emperors, actually, and they built the Colosseum on top of it because they were so much wanting to blot out the horrible injustice, the horrible cruelty. I mean, remember Nero, uh, you know, trampled one of his own wives to death. Uh, he killed his own mother. He would kill slaves for no reason. In fact, he used to collect flies and pull their wings off and put them in a frying pan and see how fast they could run before they were burnt. He just was wired for cruelty. That's what they were facing. They were facing a trial. And at the very least, Peter was describing excruciating pain that was like being burned with fire, although his definition of these, the way he described the trials was deliberately vague because not everybody got burnt. In, in Pontus, the part of this area, they didn't burn them, they pushed them over the cliffs. They would bring the town out and they had the little confess Caesar's Lord. If you wouldn't, they'd push you over the cliff. And that, that type of persecution is what these people were facing. And so the empire was all-powerful at that time. Nero was the cruel tyrant that, that served from 54 to 68, so spanning this period of time of Paul's missionary journeys, and that's why he got imprisoned several times and had to go to trial and finally was executed, and Peter too. One thing that's fascinating is uh, Nero's torches. History records, and, and I've told you that uh, um, there was a, a dissertation written by a man, I don't know if he's a Christian, but his name was Carcapino at Yale University, and he describes to, in, in intimate detail what it was like. And one of the things that's fascinating is Nero used to exhaust the treasury of the Roman Empire by throwing huge banquets for just hundreds of people would come to these banquets and they would eat strange things and they would just, um, you know, kill all these animals. And one time he served an entire platter of hummingbird tongues. You ever seen a hummingbird, you know, that long beak and it's going in, it has a tongue that goes down the length of that beak and gets whatever in the flower it wants and it comes back. Do you know how many hummingbirds had to be caught and popped open and to make a platter? I mean, that's how how ridiculous he was. But for one of his banquets, the entire pool that the present-day Colosseum is sitting on top of and was beneath it in, in Nero's time, he decided he would light the entire lagoon with torches. And that's when he did the first Christian roundup 
blaming him for the fire that devastated Rome, and he took believers, and he had them tied to poles, dipped in tar, placed upright, and he used them as torches, human torches, to burn to light all the way around his pool. That's Next time you read Romans and read Romans 16, Paul lists off 39 people by name. You can bet several of those people named ended their lives at Nero's persecution, which was only eight years after that letter was written. It's amazing to think what they went through. Well, first century believers experienced divine comfort. Look at verse 13 of chapter 4. It says, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering. When you suffer because you're a Christian, you're not suffering because you're a bad guy. You're suffering because of Christ. You're kind of taking on and, and adding to the glorious sufferings of Christ. Not Our sufferings don't have anything to do with saving people, but we're partaking of Christ's sufferings. Our suffering is of the same kind of thing that Christ received. And therefore, in some sense, suffering is an indication of a believer's identification with Christ. In fact, in verse 13, the word Paul uses there, partake, is the word koinonio. And, and, and koinonio or koinoneo speaks of sharing in fellowship with someone. So when we suffer, Jesus says, I'm partnering with you in that suffering. You know, it's kind of like uh, uh, people in a local church that support the church. Everything that church does, they're partnering with it. Uh, and, and believers that support those that go into outreach to the ends of the earth, they're partnering with them. And, and in that same sense, when we suffer, we're partnering with Christ. It, it's, it's an amazing thing to suffer, not because you were speeding and shouldn't speed or because you weren't you know, correctly you know, giving your your income and the IRS persecute you, when you purely suffer because of standing for Christ, there's a partnership in that moment that we share with him. Uh, I remember the first time it struck me about that uh, during my college years. I had the privilege, in fact, it's what's affected the rest of my life. I went on a team. Uh, when I was a little boy, used to come here as a little boy to, to Gull Lake before it was all finished. Uh, and missionaries were emphasized, I decided I would support a missionary. So on my paper route, I started saving my money, and I made $5 a month, and 50 cents of it minimum was the Lord's, and so I started sending that off to missionaries. And one of the missionaries I supported, all of you have heard of. His name was Brother Andrew in Ermelo, Holland. And I sent off my little money to him all the time, and believe it or not, he wrote back to me. Missionaries actually can write, and so he wrote back to me. And so from age 12 all the way through when I was 17, I supported him, supported him, supported him. And finally, when I was 18, I told him, I said, I've supported you for, since I was a little boy. He said, why don't you come on a trip with me? I said, I'd love to. And my parents said, you can't. It's too scary. You know, what if you get caught, you know, taking Bibles in? And so they squelched it till I was 19. And then I wrote back and he said, just meet me in... Belgrade in the lobby and you can go with the team and I said Belgrade that's a that's a communist country how do I get there he says if the Lord wants you to come you'll be there and so I told my parents and they hooked me up with someone that helped me and and I remember traveling across the ocean walking in and they said you're ready you got here you had faith you're gonna go and we started running Bibles I didn't work with him directly. In fact, I've never seen his face. I've only gotten letters from him. You know, Brother Andrew, that is. But I have taken tens of thousands of Bibles behind the Iron Curtain and into the Muslim countries. And it is unbelievable 
the people you meet. The first person I met, I was delivering 1,800 Bibles to a man in Romania. And we went to his house in the country, and by candlelight, he came to our van and reached out his hands like this to take the Bibles, and he was carrying them in and putting them in his house. And as he reached out his hands, every time I was handing him the Bibles and he put his hands out like this, I noticed his fingers. All of his fingernails were about hmm, at least an eighth, if not a quarter of an inch thick. And all of his fingernails were dark brown, like he smoked too much or something. You ever seen people with stained fingernails? All of his fingernails almost looked like they were painted brown. And I didn't think anything of it. I thought, hmm, you know, new thing, new fad in Europe, you know, paint your fingernails brown and have them thick. And he received all 1,800 Bibles and put them in his house. And we drove on. When I got back to headquarters, I said, what about that guy Boaz, the one we delivered to? What's the brown, thick fingernail stuff? They went, ooh, ask him about it next time you see him. I said, okay. So we did another load, 1,800, drove all the way across Europe to Romania. He was our main distribution point. And as I was handing the Bible, I said, Boaz, how'd you get your fingernails brown? And he stopped. And he looked at me and he says, well, last year's group didn't follow protocol. Police were suspicious. They came and found the Bibles. He said, they took me to the police station. He said, they tied my hand to a bench with my fingers hanging off. And he said, and the police chief came up with his jackknife and a little block of pine wood and was cutting off slivers. And he came up and he said, he jabbed under every one of my fingernails a sliver of pine and pulled out his cigarette lighter and lit them all. He said, your fingernails, when you have something burning underneath them, he said it, it harms them and they get thick and they come in dark. And he said, I'll take another load. That man partnered with Christ in suffering. In a small way compared to these people, he wasn't burned at the stake. By the way, our summer they caught him and the next year when I saw him, he told me, he said, they didn't burn my fingernails this time. He says, this time, they tied my feet to the bench and took off my shoes and socks and took a rubber hose, like a garden hose, and he said they just took their, they just each took turns beating away on my feet. And if you know anything about the way we're made, if you damage the nerves in the bottom of your feet, you know how acupuncture and all that stuff they do down there, it debilitates you. He couldn't walk for six months, couldn't go to work. He told me that the next year as I was handing him another load of Bibles. I said, and you're back on duty? He said, this is the least I can do for the suffering church in Romania. The, the president, Ceausescu, or whatever his name was, he said, he kills most people. He said, he only hurt my fingernails and my feet. And I'm giving out the scriptures. See, the, the apostle Paul says, the first century believers that went through this suffering partnered with Christ. And look at the end of the verse. Peter talks about the exceeding joy in the deepest sense, there is a profound confidence that God is in control of every area of our life, even the painful ones. That's why it says, on your part, he's glorified because you have exceeding joy. The end of verse 13. Well, that takes us to verse 19. Look at verse 19. First century believers not only had this comfort, they knew God allowed no accidents. This is what it says in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. You know, that one verse summarizes the whole book of 1 Peter. 
The content of the whole letter of Peter is summarized. We as believers do not suffer accidentally. God loves us so much, he does not capriciously let us suffer. God does not say, oh, I'm sorry I wasn't watching and you went through all that, you know, cancer or whatever you went through and I'm sorry I missed it. No. All of it. Look, look what it says in verse 19. He is a faithful creator. So if Boaz suffered burnt fingernails, that's what verse 19, those who suffer according to the will of God, it was the will of God. He was the representative of the Brethren Church. He's the one that knew every church in the country. He's the one who received the Bibles. He's the one that would deliver the Bibles. He made sure they got where they went. And if along with it came burnt fingernails, so be it. Because God, verse 19, does good. He is a faithful creator. Do you see why it's so good to go to the mission field? You meet these genuine Christians. You meet people that don't measure their Christian life financially. You know, in America, health and wealth and prosperity. If you're a good Christian, you have enough faith, you'll be wealthy and healthy and, and prosperous lives. Over there, they say, no, we'll suffer because they hated Christ. And the more you look like him, the more you'll be hated by them. Well, the book of Peter is an epistle of hope portrayed against the backdrop of suffering. If Paul emphasizes faith and if John emphasizes love, Peter emphasizes hope. Peter begins by explaining salvation starts a living hope. That's 1 Peter 1 and verse 13. And he says there, um, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and, and let your hope be fully resting on the grace that is to be revealed. We have an, an endless living hope, and Peter reminds us of that. Peter adds to this hope that it guards our minds so we can hope to the end. In verse 13, our hope is the defense before a watching world. We're the ones that aren't supposed to be hopeless. We're supposed to sorrow, not as those who have no hope. And so we go before a watching world. In fact, another thing I picked up, I spent so much time over there in Russia and all over the communist world. When someone died, you should see their funerals. And some of you probably have that have gone. They march through town. They go up and down every street of these villages singing hymns. They take the longest way they can to the cemetery. So they go by every house with the believer carrying the casket, singing their hearts out as a church. Do you know what that does? It says believers have hope. They're not afraid of death. They're not afraid of dying. They don't think that that's all there is. They don't go through life not talking about, because it's negative if you talk about death. They talk about death like it's the doorway to heaven. They have such a different view. I think they actually believe all this stuff, you know, over there. Um, but by the time we come to chapter 5, look at verses 5 through 7. Peter here explains a trio of spiritual attitudes. Now, the reason this is so important is the Bible is an integrated message. It, it, be very cautious about anybody that just pulls one little part out and they just kind of ignore all the rest. You can't talk about humility without remembering it's part of a trio. There are three virtues that always are grouped together. It's kind of like uh, humility is not usually ever presented by itself. It always comes with garnishes, with surrounding virtues. And, and that's what Peter shows us here. When God is our focus, when we're spiritually healthy, all three attitudes are together. Submissiveness, verse 5. Look what 1 Peter 5, let me get to it. Verse 5 says, it says, Likewise, you younger people, what's the next word? 
Submit. So submissiveness there. Submit. And then look at verse 6. Therefore, what? Humble. There's a second word. Submissiveness in verse 5. Verse 6, humble. And then look at the end of verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. When someone casts all their cares, when they throw them all away, they begin to be what we would call peaceful. And what's interesting is this trusting God enough to cast the cares, trusting God enough to submit to him, always surrounds humility. A humble person is trusting God with their life. A humble person is submitting to God and what he wants. And, and a humble person, that's why they're a servant or a slave. They're willing to do that. First Peter says that younger believers, both physically and spiritually, are to submit to the recognized leaders as gifted and chosen by God. And Peter talks about submission heavily. Um, and I could go through it. He, he says, all saints submit to government. Uh, that's chapter uh, 2, verse 13. All believing slaves submit to their masters. And I was thinking about that, uh, talking about, uh, Abraham was talking about all the slavery around the world. You know, in a small sense, my dad was a slave to General Motors, if you ask me. I mean, he worked for them his whole life. And, and my dad wanted to obey that company because he wanted to keep his job. And so he, he had a master. They told him when to go to work, how long to work, what he was supposed to do. And you know what? He really didn't question it. He worked 46 years there and provided wonderfully for our family, had a wonderful ministry. And he had a master, and he knew it. And they told him what to do, and he willingly did it. Now, I know he wasn't bought and chained. But what Peter was saying is if someone is in authority over you, 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25, submit to him. We live in the most unsubmissive generation in history since the flood, I think. And, and that's why we're going to have a, a real lack of godly elders in future years. Because we have a crop of young people that don't know how to submit to anybody or anything. And, and, and it's a supernatural thing to be submissive. But I'm not preaching about submission tonight, so let's keep going. What's amazing is God has said submissiveness humbleness and peacefulness are always tied together, interconnected, and they're mutually dependent. You, you can't really be submissive if you're not dependent. And you can't be dependent and submissive if you're not humble. And, and it's just they, they're so connected. Now, basically this. Humility is seen in submissiveness and leads to peacefulness. See, see humility will be reflected in a person's submissive attitude and it will lead them to this peacefulness because you can't be submissive unless you trust God. Remember, uh, he must increase, but I must, in must decrease. That but is when I wonder, wait a minute, if I stop pushing myself, if I stop uh, promoting myself, who's going to promote me? I have to trust God. So you see this humility is seen in submissiveness to God's will and peacefulness that he's going to take over. Peacefulness comes by humility plus submission. A humble person who submits to God is clothed with a peace that passes understanding. Remember how it says the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds? How? 
It's when we submit ourselves to him as a faithful creator and we humbly say, I want the role you've given me. I want to serve you. Finally, submission. If, see, you can come in. When you understand humility, submissiveness and peacefulness become a part of your life. When you understand how to be peaceful, humility and submission come to your life. When you submit, it leads to humility and peace. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying this is just a trio. Uh, it's just part of the way God works. So God says, here it is, submission is a pathway. Look what it says in verse 5. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Here it is. Be clothed with humility. Now what's interesting is the, the middle passive form of this means clothe yourself with humility. It's in the closet. It's offered by God. It's empowered by his grace, but it's a choice you make. Be clothed with humility. Why? The end of verse 5. God resists the proud. Now, now see this? God says submission is a pathway to grace, but gives grace to the humble. The surest conduit of God's grace is humility. God says, you're wearing, you're wearing, you put on the garment of humility. Let me douse you with my riches that Christ expended his life to offer you freely. I'm going to pour my grace on you. Amazing. The first choice on the pathway to spiritual maturity is submissiveness. All believers, verse 5, submit to one another's God-designed roles. Do you know how to understand this whole problem about gender, uh, you know, equality and everything else and how that fits with the church and the home? God has given us gender-specific roles. I'm a man, I'm supposed to lead in the home and the church, whether I want to or not. Whether I feel I'm qualified. In fact, I can honestly say, my wonderful wife is here. Bonnie is smarter than me, Bonnie is faster than me, and she's more spiritual than I am. In fact, most churches would have hired her over me. In fact, most pulpit committees said, we really like her, you're okay. <laughs> For 40 years, I've heard this. But you know what? That doesn't mean that she's supposed to lead our home, because that's not her role. God gave gender-specific roles. Do you know why we have gender uh, dysphoria in America? These, these, a whole generation that, that in California, they can change their gender every day. They can say, I'm a man today, I'm a woman tomorrow, I'm both today, I'm neither. In fact, they're allowing birth certificates with no gender. Oh, that's dysphoria, confusion. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 11 says, as God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of the church. And as Christ is the head of the church, the husband is to be the head of the family and lead his wife. We have a whole generation of people saying, no, no, that's cultural, that, that's Jewish. It is. So Jesus shouldn't be submissive to the Father, the church shouldn't be submissive to Christ, and the husband shouldn't be submissive to Christ and be the leader of the home. We have a group of children growing up in a dysphoric home where the wife runs the home, the husband has PMS. Do you know what that is? Passive male syndrome. And he is off passively saying, it's too hard to lead this thing, the wife does, and the kids get confused about who's supposed to do what. And it just, it just cycles into 
what we're seeing, the dissolution of the family. That's why God tells us in 1 Peter 5, 5, God's answer is always submit to God first. Then choose to clothe yourself with humility. Then whatever your gender-specific role is, you'll take it because you trust God. Jesus could lay aside his outer garments in the upper room. He could tie on the apron of a slave to wash the disciples' feet at the Last Supper because he already submitted to do the will of the Father. Jesus is co-equal, co-eternal with God. He is God of gods, light of light. He is God the Son. But he pulled off his outer garment and went on his knees washing those dirty, smelly feet of the disciples and could humble himself before them because he'd already submitted to the Father. And he says, I don't think my co-equality with God is something to be grasped after, Philippians 2. And so he humbled himself and took the form of a servant. True godly submission in our marriages, in our churches, and in our life is never possible till we submit to God. So that's why whenever I met all these rabble-rousing Christians that were always trying to divide and everything, I, I didn't think it was against me. They just didn't want to submit to God. I just happened to be the visible representative that bothered them. Only God's grace can enable us to submit to other believers, submit to ungodly governments. <laughs> when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, Nero, while he was writing it, rode around in a chariot in Rome next to a castrated male slave by the name of Florus and had a homosexual relationship that was very public. And Paul wrote in the inspired word, submit to him. Peter said, honor him. That's impossible without the grace of God. Only God's grace can enable us to submit to believers to ungodly governments, to our work authorities. But when we do, God is able to make all grace abound toward us. That's how the early church won the ancient world. They didn't have a problem with being mistreated, with being, you know, horribly discriminated against. Christians were the ultimate scapegoat of discriminating behavior. And they took it joyfully as suffering for Christ's sake. God's grace abounds when we submit. And God says humility is a pathway to spiritual maturity. Look at, at verse 5. It says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Uh, verse 6 says, and he will exalt you. The second choice on the pathway to spiritual maturity after submissiveness is humility. God always will resist pride in any form. God hates pride, unusually so. He hates it. He sees it first. That's why it says the eyes of the Lord are running to and fro. And what he's looking for is any of us whose heart is completely toward him and not double-minded and not self-seeking, and he will show himself strong through us. All the great things we see happening around the world are accomplished through people who God sees their heart is tipped toward him and they struggle, and, and we all struggle, and, and we're never perfect this side of, of being glorified in his presence and likeness. But they want him to increase. And he says, you want me to increase? Boy, I'm going to pour out my power through you. God desires to close us, clothe us with his humility. Well, uh, submission is very hard because it requires we trust God more than ourselves. Number one, the only medication that defeats pride is grace. And the only pathway to that grace is submissiveness. 
And grace enables us to clothe ourselves with humility because, as Paul said, the grace of God that brings salvation teaches us to deny ungodliness. The same grace that saves us teaches us to deny the ungodliness of living like the devil in pride. So grace enables us to clothe ourselves with humility, and the evidence of grace is submission when we submit humbly to one another. The grace of submission is most evident in mature believers. You know how Paul says, in honor, prefer one another. Uh, You know, at church, it's kind of like, oh, no, you go ahead of me. No, you go ahead of me. No, you go first. No, it's okay. That, that's the, the, the submissive godly spirit. Well, real quickly, spiritual maturity prompts the attitude of peacefulness. It says in verse seven, therefore, or verse six, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you, casting all your care on him. Now, this is the best part. So some of you need to stir yourself back. Uh, I know that I'm a, I put people to sleep. In fact, just before I finished up at Calvary, before we went to the mission field, this lady fell asleep in the evening service. Now, you know, I go extra long in the evening service, used to go 60 minutes, and she was out cold. She was actually, her head was on her knees. And the deacons didn't know what to do. And it was 8.20. The service had been over 50 minutes. She was still sleeping. And she was just, I mean, head on knees. Looked like one of those Hindus, you know, that can totally get in that lotus position. And the deacon men on duty, all of them said, we don't know what to do. She's about 80-some years old. We're afraid she'll have a heart attack if we scare her. I said, did you know they teach you what to do about that in seminary? They went, there's actually a course in what to do with all the things that happen in the congregation. One of them is people who fall asleep, how not to embarrass them. And I'll tell you, even, I'm going to save you five years of seminary, okay? Next to the sleeping person, you sit down next to him like you're sitting on the bus, and then you just lightly bump against him while you're sitting. All of us have had someone just lightly bump us in a car or on a bus or in an airplane, and what you do is you go like this. You look, you know, you just casually look around to see why they bumped you, and it was me next to her, bumped her, and she went, Pastor, I fell asleep. I said, you did, and all the deacons were standing there watching. She didn't scare her or anything. She just started talking and smiled at me and rose up, you know, got up from her lotus position, and she said, could I tell you, and there, she didn't see them. They're all listening. She said, can I tell you why I fall asleep in church? I said, I'd love to know. It happens all the time. I wonder why people fall asleep. She said, I don't know why they do, but she said, since my husband died, I can't sleep at home. She said, I don't feel safe. And she said, I come to church, and when I walk in here surrounded by the saints, I feel so safe. She said, I fall asleep every service. I said, come to all three on Sunday and fall asleep. You'll increase our attendance, and we will minister to you. But come on, you guys. The final choice on the pathway to spiritual maturity after submissiveness and humility is peacefulness. A submissive and humble person. God takes care of our troubles. Now look how he does it. I'm going to go through this. 1 Peter 5, 7, the word translated care in English comes from a Greek word rich in meaning. It means anxiety, literally the state of being pulled apart. A couple days ago we had pulled pork, you know. That's what anxiety does. It pulls us apart like that pulled pork. And God asks us to gather up and consciously unload all of our burdens all of our discontentment, all of our troubles, all of our anxious thoughts, all of our fears, and all of our pains onto him. Believers can't really point others to an all-powerful Heavenly Father 
when they are personally unwilling to trust him with their own problems in life. We're going to the world saying, Christ can completely meet all of your needs. Well, not mine. I'm anxious and troubled and torn apart by all my anxieties, but he can help yours. It just zeroes out the message. Psalm 55 is what Peter's talking about. He's, he's quoting it. Cast your burden on the Lord. He shall sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. God walks by us every day in life, looking at us under our load of cares and troubles, and he's standing there like a divine dumpster saying, you can throw it all in here. And we prefer to carry it. God says, throw all of your heavy painful, sharp, poisonous, debilitating, injuring thoughts and attitudes onto me. They're wearing you down. And my mighty hand can hold all of your sorrows, all of your woes, all of your pains, all of your fears. You can't. They're injuring you. They're injuring your relationship with me when you hold on to them. They distract you away from looking at me with the eyes of faith and the heart of trust. Actually, the verb the Spirit inspired Peter to use makes this so clear. It's once for all, that's the aorist tense, that we're supposed to cast once for all. We're supposed to make a choice once and for all. We're going to give all of our past cares, all of our present cares, and any that come in the future to God. We don't sort them. We don't keep the ones we think we can handle. We give all of them to him. He wants them all. Do you see why these people were so bold? They just trusted God. They submitted to God. They were humble. And God said, when you do that, humility is seeking to allow Christ to increase. Submissiveness, humbleness, and peacefulness are tied together, interconnected. It's amazing. The key to God's attention is humility. The formula is he must increase. That's humility. But that's trust. I must decrease. That's submission. And that's Peter's message. And that's why the people living in the most Roman part of the ancient world were brave and bold and saw Christ formed across the empire so that finally, because of Asia Minor, one emperor said, you can't defeat the church. And he quit. The only Roman empire that retired was Diocletian. He's the one that persecuted the church for 10 years. He destroyed every building, destroyed every copy of the Bible he could find, killed every pastor, and it didn't work. More Christians came from the blood of the martyrs. So finally he said, I give up, and he retired from being emperor. And Constantine came and made Christianity legal. It's because of those people that learned that lesson that if you humbly submit and trust God, there is a holy boldness and a life that is so infectiously, contagiously reflective of Christ that people wanted to become Christians. That's how we're supposed to live today, in humility. Let's bow for a word of prayer, and then Tim Gatorade is going to come and minister to us. Father in heaven, I thank you for the privilege of your word. We can see a mirror reflecting Christ. We can see ourselves where we fall short, and we don't get discouraged and quit and give up. We just say, I ask for your grace to help in time of need. I flee to you. I need to put all my cares in that divine dumpster, all my woes, all my fears, all my hurts. I know you care for me. I trust you. I submit to you because you're all powerful and, and you know what's best. And I clothe myself with humility so that Christ 
only and always will be seen in me. I pray that would be the cry of our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.